We thank you, God, that you are a great God who hears. And uh, we recognize, Lord, that um, our adversary would want to keep us down and in the dust and not rebuilding and not growing, Lord. And, and so these fiery darts come against our faith family, Lord. I ask uh, that you would be our front and our rear guard, that you would be the shield about us, Father God, and that you would heal all wounds and that you would um, comfort all pain, God, that you would strengthen our resolve, that we would remain fixed on you, that we would place on, uh, we would put on our armor, God, and recognize, Lord, as we desire to make an impact for your kingdom, that it will become even more intense, perhaps. But Lord, may that never stop us. May that never quench our spirit. Because you're worth it. You're worth it, God. There is no greater thing that we can be doing with our lives than to, to build into your kingdom, God. To, to live for your fame. To live for your renown. So strengthen our resolve, God. Fill us full of faith. Help us to set our eyes on you. And I pray that as we study these words tonight, God, you would mold and shape our hearts. Father, I ask that you would help me to rightly divide your word. And God, that we would leave this place loving you more. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a quote, you've probably heard it before, and I tried to find the source of this quote, and it's debated. Uh, we know it's, well... It was made popular by Emerson and um, another author that I don't recall his name now, in the 1800s. But they believe it was a, a proverb long before that. And it is simply this. You've, you've probably heard this. Sow, sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. And I think, though I didn't make this quote up, I think you could add one to the beginning. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow a thought, reap an act. Reap, sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And I always hear that with Yoda, <laughs> you know, from Star Wars, mm! <laughs> saying it, but that, that's just me. But that was what was going on with the Corinthian church. And basically, we kind of talked about it last week and why Paul needed to write this letter was they had their, their thinking had strayed from the foundations that Paul had laid while he was there in Corinth. And so their thoughts then changed their, their wrong thinking caused them to act wrongly. And if they had continued to let that go, then wrong actions become wrong habits, and wrong habits become wrong character, and wrong character becomes a wrong destiny. And so Paul recognizes that. And he says, whoa, 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 we're going to stop that train before we get into character and destinies. And he's even going to talk a little bit about that today. But let's bring it back is what he's saying. Let's get our thinking on track. And so he spends the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians saying, this is our thinking. 
These are our foundations. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I taught you is what He said. We have no division in the church. There are not sects of Apollos and, and groups of those that follow Paul and those that follow Peter and those that follow Jesus. We are all the body of Christ, it said in the letter. And so he's, he's, he's pulling them back. And then as we started, we studied chapter 5 last week, he's now saying, now that we have your, your, your thought life back in order, everything foundational, now let's work on those, those actions that you had um, strayed in. And last week he talked about sexual purity, remaining pure. And then also uh, the, it was the issue of the, the man that had taken his, his father's wife. And then he also talked about proper judgments and how Paul had said, I, I make judgment on this man and this is, what I, this is what I've decided. And so he brings in this idea of church discipline. And we said at the end of last week, and I hope you caught it, the, the, the object and the goal of Paul as he does, does this, as he, he, he levels a, a strong judgment against a man to say, kick him out of church in hopes that he will see his need again and, 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 and repent and come back to Christ. As he does that and as he issues church discipline and says, brothers, you ought not to be living this way, his hope is healthy sheep. His hope is that, that through these things that, that his sh- sheep would grow, that they would mature, and that they would uh, you know, understand these things. And so um, he had a healthy goal. And we said too often in, in our day and age, the goal of a church is not necessarily healthy sheep. It's numbers. And it's either numbers of people or it's numbers of dollars. And then if that's your end goal as a church, then the, it doesn't matter if you have healthy sheep or not, as long as you have those numbers. Whereas Paul said, no, we, we want to, even if this guy needs to step out of church for a while to, to get his life right, we want to do that because we want healthy sheep. And so it, it's challenging. And now he's going to look at another issue in the church in, in chapter 6, a couple different issues, but particularly what was happening was they were going to court with one against one another. There in the church, they were having lawsuits against their brothers and sisters and, and going before the court for them to decide who's, who's going to win. And Paul says, well, this is, this is dumb, basically, is what, he gonna, is what he's going to say. Look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So you recall what Paul's beef was when, they were, when he was trying to set their thoughts straight? They, they, the church had said, hey, Paul, you're, you're not so wise. We, we got this stuff figured out. We're the wise ones. And even and Paul in, in chapter 4 gets sarcastic about that. Oh, oh, you're the king. Oh, you're the wise one. Yeah, yeah, you got it all figured out. And now he's saying, wait a minute. You told me, he's telling the church at Corinth, you, you told me you're wise, and yet you take a, a dispute in the church and take it to an unrighteous judge to figure it out? Isn't I thought you were wise. How come you can't figure this out yourself? So he's kind of picking on them. Not, or I don't want to say picking, but he's, 
He's like pointing out their flaws to say, hey, your, your, your logic isn't adding up here. And he's saying, you're taking them before the unrighteous. And, and it's not, that word means unrighteous. It means, it's not that the, the civil judges of that day, those in the land there in Corinth, weren't able to make judgments. They were. What he's saying is they weren't qualified to make spiritual judgments. So why would you take a spiritual matter most often and, and take it to a, a non-spiritual judge to judge for you? You say you're wise, but you're not, you're not acting it is what he's saying. And then he, he, he drops a bomb. Check this out in verse 2. Did you know this? Probably you've read it before, but verse 2, look at this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? There's a day coming when you and I, those saints in Christ, will judge the world. What? Well, there's a day coming when Christ is going to return, that he will rule and reign, that he will sit on his throne, and he will judge the world. Well, what's that got to do with you and me? You and I are in Christ. You and I are in Christ. And so we will rule and reign, Revelation would say, we will rule and reign with him. And we will make judgment, Paul says, we will make judgment on the world. So he's saying, if, if that's the case... What, why do you think you're unworthy to judge these worldly or small disputes? Now check out verse 3. You thought that was pretty amazing. Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? What? How much more things that pertain to this life? So that not only are we to judge the world, we're going to judge angels. Wow. As we sit with Christ, Christ will be the, the, the ruler, and we, we are in him. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you get to go to your guardian angel and, and look him up and say, hey, you remember that time I got beat up in the alley? Where, where exactly were you that day? <laughs> and you're going to drop judgment on your guardian angel. That's not what he's necessarily talking about here. Most commentators would believe that it's talking about the, the one-third of the angels that fell with Lucifer that they chose to, to, to follow after their God, Lucifer, and, and the day will come when we will judge them. And so he's saying, if, if that's the case, if that day is coming, and all we'll have in that day to make those judgments is the same thing that we have now, the Holy Spirit, why, why, are, why are we not settling these disputes within the church is what he's asking. He's, he's really challenging their thinking on this and on them being wise. Verse 4, if, you, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? You're taking these matters outside the church to make judgments. I say this to your shame. Is it so? that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. And so these were lawsuits that were happening within the church. I suddenly have a beef with somebody over something, 
And it could be a legitimate wrong. This wasn't just necessarily frivolous, but perhaps somebody had wronged. And they're saying, why, what are you doing? Why are you taking this outside the church? Now, is Paul saying that should we ever have an issue with our brother that we would never take it to a court? I don't, I don't think he's putting the clamps on that strongly. Because if you have an issue with your brother that requires judgment and your brother is unwilling to listen to the judgment of the church, then you may have to go to the civil court. It's a possibility. And so, but his, his point being, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. You have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Why can't you make a simple judgment over these things? Is there, is there not even one among you? And so he's really railing on the entire church here to say, let's get our thinking back and let's set our, let's set our minds right and, and, and make a, a wise judgment. Verse six. Brother, uh, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is an it is already an utter failure failure for you that you go to law against one another. Now, listen to this. How does this grate against our flesh? Why do you rather not accept or not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated. Ow. We don't like that as Americans. Because we got rights. And nobody comes against our rights. That's not what Paul's saying here. As Christians, as Christ followers, he's saying... We're dead men walking. Dead men have no rights. Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged? I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Isn't that our example? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said to do in Matthew chapter 5? You've heard it said. This is Matthew 5, 38 through 48, if you want to turn there. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And we, we would try to excuse that. Oh, Jesus was just talking. He's allegorical there. He doesn't really mean if somebody literally slaps you on the face that you turn your other cheek. Really? If anyone wants to sue you, he says in verse 40, and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Oh, you want to sue me for my tunic? Here, let me. you can have my coat too. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In that day and age, it was a Roman soldier's right to take anybody out of a crowd and say, you carry my gear for the next mile. 
So when it says, when somebody compels you to go one mile, it's not like, hey, buddy, I'm, I'm going down the road. Would you walk with me? No, it was a Roman soldier grabbing you by the collar and pulling you out of the crowd, throwing his gear on you, and you walk for the next mile. And Jesus says, go to. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Everybody loves their family. Everybody loves those that love them. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you, what do, you do more than, than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore... You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus says about how we treat an evil one. How much more than in those in the church? How much more do we treat, shall we treat our brothers, even if they have done us wrong? Isn't, Paul says it back in Corinthians, isn't, isn't it better to be wrong? Is there, is, there a, is there a time then that as Christians we should, we should defend ourselves, we should fight back? Yes, there are specific situations. There are, uh, I don't want to try to name one or the other because every situation is different. And as soon as I start naming them, then, then you're, you're, we're all saying, well, this is what he said. But the principle should be love, even to those who do wrong to you, even to, to those who, who spit in your face, who, you know, stab you in the back. And I'm sorry, I've been in ministry 16 years. It's happened a whole bunch to me where we've had people, you know, leave the church over crazy reasons. And it's just, you know, it's a stab in the back. It's a wound. And, and. And then you see them again, and it's like, you'd like to tell them their place, <laughs> like to correct their thinking. God just says, it's okay, I got gotcha. you, I got gotcha. you. That's a hard principle for us, isn't it? That's, that's, that's some tough stuff there. Look at it again, verse 7. Would you not rather... Or why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Paul almost seems embarrassed by their conduct. He is the, the proud father of this church, you know. He, he's the one that established this church, and he's like, guys, it's, it's an utter failure that you're doing this, that you're, you're going to the law to, to sort these disputes out. You're, he's almost saying you're embarrassing me. And he's just like, just, it's okay. Let God have the glory. Don't fight for yours. Verse 8. No, 
you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And there's the smackdown. This this has to stop happening is what he says. You do wrong, you cheat, you call yourself a Christian, and you're not living in that way, and you do this to your family? He's like, stop it. Where is, where is the grace in that? How is that displaying the love of Christ when, when you do wrong, when you cheat, and when you do that to your brethren? Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Strong. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says to his church in Corinth. So an act. Reap a character. So a character. Reap a destiny. Whatever it was. I don't remember now. <laughs> Let me go back up here. So an act. Reap a habit. So a habit. Reap a character. So a character. Reap a destiny. You continue down this path. You continue to practice these things. And the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't saying you're going to lose your salvation here. What he's saying is if you live a lifestyle of continually practicing these things, and he's going to give a list here, then he's going to say, were you ever really a Christian at all? Were you, were you, he's questioning their faith in, to begin with. He's a, so it, it, this, is not, this is not a list of if you've ever done any one of these things, you are banned from the kingdom of heaven. That's not what this list that I'm about to read is saying at all. Because I don't know about you, but I've done some of these things. What it's saying is, if you are practicing these lifestyles, then you shall not inherit the kingdom. Do not be deceived, he says in the middle of verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice these things is what he's saying. It's habitual. If you look at that list, I don't know about your life. I don't know what background you've come from necessarily. But I can look at that list and say, I've committed some of those. Yet I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I know. I know that Jesus said it is finished and that my sins have been forgiven by the blood shed on the cross. And I'm redeemed. He's going to talk about being washed and justified, or washed and sanctified and justified. And I know that I know that I'm that. How do I know? Because my lifestyle is bearing that truth that I'm not walking in those sins anymore. And even if I went out tonight and slipped up in one of them, as long as I repented and said, God, that's, that's not, I didn't, I'm sorry. I, that's, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to live that lifestyle. I don't want to do those things. That's not who I am. As long as you're not practicing those things. 
Okay, does that make sense? Look at verse 11. He reminds them. After giving them this list, I wonder how close we are. Sorry, I'm just thinking. As we read that list, you know there's a day coming when that will be hate speech. When I could be arrested for that. It's already happening in Canada. We need to decide if we're going to stand on the truth of the Word of God. I am. So I'll keep reading the list. Anyway, he reminds them in verse 11, and such were some of you. Past tense. You're not living that way anymore. You're not in that lifestyle anymore. So as you walk forward, remember that. And remember how you go from that lifestyle to where we are in Christ today. It's not on our own merit. It's not on our own faith. It's not on our own strength. It's by God's grace. If I am anything appealing to anybody, it's not because of me. It's not because of my flesh. It's because of God's grace. If I have walked away from these lifestyles, if I have walked away from these sins, it's not because I had the strength to do so. It's because of God's grace in me. It's because of His strength. Such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. His grace is wonderful. His grace is amazing. You were washed. Sounds good, doesn't it? God cleaned us. God purified us. God set us off. It says in Ephesians 5, as we look at the relationship between a husband and a wife, that a husband is to wash his wife with the Word. That's what Christ does with His church. He purifies us as we read and as we understand, as we learn His Word. He washes us. He cleanses us. He purifies us. You were sanctified. What's that mean? Set apart. Sanctified means made holy. He, he took you out of the normal and the everyday and the mundane and the average and the miry clay he washes and He cleanses you and then He sets your feet upon the rock and He sets you aside just like they set aside the utensils in the tabernacle. That's where we first get the word sanctified. They were only used for the things of holiness, for the, the acts that were performed in the temple. They weren't common and they weren't every day. So God washes us and He sets us aside as holy. Purifies us washed, sanctified, and justified. I love that word. I, it's not that God wipes or, or, or sweeps our sin underneath the rug. It's not that God just takes the sin off of us and forgets about it. It's that we stand before a just God justified. It's not just a, a pardon. It's, it's a paid-for exemption 
He doesn't just cast our sin aside. It's paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we stand before him as if we had never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's how you, an easy way to remember the, the meaning of justified. Just as, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how we stand before our God. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Washed, sanctified, and justified. When I was uh, working in the nursing home, uh, my first job in high school was to work in the dietary department in the nursing home. And according to the, you guys, if you've worked in a kitchen, you have certain health standards that you, you need to, um, you know, obey. And, uh, and so we would, as we, I was a dishwasher. And then when you wash the dishes by hand, there was a, a three bin sink that you had to take all the dishes through. And the first bin had the hot, soapy water, had to be a certain temperature, you know, usually had to wear gloves because the water was hot enough and then, of course, soapy, and you wash it there, and then you rinse it in the next one, and then the third one was a disinfectant that you put it in, and and then you set it in the rack to dry. So Jesus takes us through that. (laughs) <laughs> the washing and the, they don't exactly line up, I recognize, but it's just, we got a three step process before we're thrown on the rack to dry, I guess. That's a bad analogy, but I just, anyway. <laughs> we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. Praise the Lord, amen. That, God is so good. God is so good. As we look at our lives, Consider how far you have come, how far you have grown in the Lord. And as we look back and we say, wow, we've, we've come a long way. Or maybe, maybe you can't say that yet. Maybe it's still new to you, and that's okay too. But if there's progress, recognize, hey man, it's not by my merit. It's not by my efforts. It's by God's grace. And, and, and the, the process of sanctification is a lifelong process. It's not until we see him face to face that sanctification is complete because then we step into glorification. So expect that your whole life we will be continually washed and continually um, sanctified and justified. Now Paul's going to say, hey, you Christian, we are the most free of people. That's what he's going to say next. Look at verse 12. All things... All means all, that's all all means. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That's awesome. That in Christ we have liberty. A greater liberty than anything else in the world offers. We have the freedom to to do these things. To do... (laughs) Pick something. Do I have the liberty to go out and drink a beer tonight? Yeah, I do. Does that mean I'm going to? No. No, because not all things are helpful. And I'm not going to be mastered by anything. You guys have walked with me on Wednesday nights for several years now, two years now. And uh, and perhaps you recall when I went through my juice fast, 
and uh, lost a bunch of weight. And I remember declaring to you that that God had had delivered me from my addiction to food. And I, that's something I've struggled with since fourth grade. I don't have anorexia or bulimia. I just like to eat a lot. And, and I find comfort in it. And usually when I have, I'm stressed out, that's what I turn to is food. And I felt as though after 40 days of fasting that God truly had delivered me. And I think that in many ways that he did. But since then, I, I've, I'll be honest with you, I've gained the weight back. Everything, every pound I've lost and more, I've gained back. I, 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 I tweeted last weekend, I, I, you know, coffee is no longer just a treat for me. It's an addiction. <laughs> I, I have to have Tim Horton's coffee. I'm pretty sure I can't go without it. <laughs> That's not true, but <laughs> I, it's no freedom if you have to have it. It's no it's not to think that you can do whatever you want, and especially in the arena that he gave the list of, in the arena of sin, you're not free to do any of those sins. That's not freedom. It's in slavery. You're, you're in, enslaved to those sins. And Paul's saying there's a better way. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a grander way to follow Christ. All things are lawful. Paul's saying, I, I can do whatever I want, but not, not everything's going to be helpful. And I'm not going to be bar- brought under the power of any. Why? He's going to say, because I'm under the power of Jesus Christ. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. And now he's going to talk specifically. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I think they, they struggled in those days. You understand that, I mean, the, the, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and the, the issues we have with sex in our culture today is the same issues that they had in Corinth in that day. And if you look at what they would say in their day, which is this, when I'm hungry, I eat. So why not, when I'm lusting, can I have sex with whomever I want? I can eat whatever I want. Why can't I have sex with whomever I want? That was their rationale. That was their justification. Do you see that in the culture today? Does that, it's, it's almost an animalistic approach. I see that, I want it, I'm taking it. And, and, we, and we live in that culture, you and I do today. And, and what was happening in the Corinthian church is they were saying, well, that's what's good out there, that's what we'll do in here. But I, I, I get hungry three times a day. So how, if I'm lusting, why not just take what I want? I feed my body. It's just doing the same thing. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Sex is very different than just feeding your body, is what he's going to say. God will destroy it and both it and them, talking about food in the stomach. When we live in the millennial kingdom, we know that we're going to eat 
right? We have the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's this great feast that's being prepared, but it won't be, I don't want to say this, it won't be a necessity. It won't, it'll be a pleasure, but it won't necessarily be a necessity. In heaven, do we, are we going to have sexual relations? No. Why? Because none are given in marriage. And that's the boundary that God has given for sexuality is within the boundaries of marriage. So God is saying, we're, 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 or Paul is saying, we're not going to deal with that there. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. He's introducing, or he's, he's talking about, and perhaps you've heard this before, but the, the sexual relationship is something more than just physical. The Hebrew word for, for sexual intercourse is the word dod, D-O-D. And what it means literally is the mingling of souls. And so there is a, a spiritual connotation to sexual intimacy. That, that Paul would say, as he says here, that God would say, the two become one flesh. They are, they are intermingled. The souls are intermingled together. And so as he has said before in the book of Corinthians, Christ is in you. You are, you, the, the, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. Your temple is the body of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm trying to say. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so now he asks the question, if as Christ dwells with you, are, are you going to take him into this relationship, into this sin? And I tell you what, that is such a great motivator in my life for holiness. If you and I remember that Christ dwells inside of us, how quickly would we be apt to act on our impulses? If we can remember that before, it's a, it's a great drive toward holiness. Christ, wherever, wherever you're headed toward sin, you're taking Christ with you, brothers and sisters. Oh, that's, I need that motivation in my life to remember that. As I, as I lead our church, and I remember we were talking a, a while back, you know, years ago, just about what it is to lead, be leaders, in leadership and, and the, uh, the call for holiness as you lead. One of the, one of the motivators is you, you don't want to let anybody down. You, you have people looking up to you and respecting you, and, and so use that as a motivator to say, I'm just continuing to strive for holiness. Well, how much greater is the motivator to remember that Christ dwells inside of you? And do you want to mingle souls with somebody who's not your spouse with Christ in you? He's saying, may it never be. The one who, I like that in verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So what should we do? Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual 
immorality sins against his own body. What do we do against sexual immorality? I'm going to stand here and fight. I'm going to, I'm going to tough this one out. I can handle this. It's not what the Word of God says. Flee. Literally, run. That's what Joseph did. Right? Potiphar. Hey, baby. Why don't you come up to my bedroom? Why don't you come, you know, help me out? Joseph's a slave. He's going to tell his, his, his owner's wife no. She grabs his coat. He's like, ah, I'm out of here. <laughs> he runs. That's what Paul's saying. Flee, run, literally. I've been in that situation. It's happened. As a, as a garage door guy, you go fix a lonely woman's garage door, and they say, hey, could you come take a look at my bed? I've, I've got something's broken up there. I've had it happen. I'm not a good-looking guy. <laughs> I recognize that. I literally got in my truck and drove away. Didn't collect the money, nothing. I'm like, not even running down this. Flee, run, run away from sexual immorality. Don't try to stand. Don't try to resist. Don't try to fight. Run. It's good advice. He reminds us in verse 19. I don't know if Shell knew that. I think I surprised her. I apologize for that. <sighs> Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Powerful words impact our lives. You're not your own. So what difference does it make if you are wrong? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're taken out of your slavery to sin. And you're bought with a price. And you become a servant of the Most High God who dwells inside of us. Remember that. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's how he ends that chapter. He's going to continue to correct, and, and he gets even stronger as the chapters go along. And then, and then he also is going to start answering specific questions that they had uh, as we get into 11 and 12 and 13, the, the spiritual gifts and things like that. Call to holiness. May our, may our thinking be right, that our lives and our actions may be right that with our entire lives, we may glorify the God who dwells inside of us. I don't know about you guys, but as I taught John chapter 1, and just this, the week before and this week, I am overwhelmed with the fact that this God, this very big God who holds the span of the universe in his hands, dwells inside of us. That's so mind-blowing. So wonderful. His grace is so amazing. I hope you're falling all the more in love with him. I am. All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you.
I thank you that you've washed us and you've sanctified us and you've justified us and is not by our own righteousness that we come before you, God. I thank you for the Holy Spirit which dwells inside of us. I thank you that we were bought with a price and I pray that with our lives we would come and live and bring you glory with the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, with the actions of our lives, we would show that we are in love with you. And it matters not what happens to us. May we be fuel in your flame for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.